Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast fully dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, we have a very special returning guest, Camille Schreier. Camille graduated with honors from Virginia Tech in 2018 with dual Bachelor of Science degrees in biochemistry and systems biology. She is currently pursuing a Doctor of Pharmacy degree at Virginia Commonwealth University. In 2019, Camille earned the title Miss Virginia after performing a science experiment, the catalytic decomposition of hydrogen peroxide, as her onstage talent. In December 2019, Camille was named Miss America 2020, again after showcasing her science skills. Camille has also been featured on national and international media outlets, including The Today Show, CNN, BBC, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, Inside Edition, The Weather Channel, Southern Living, Canada's CTV, Germany's RTL, and many more. She also partnered with PBS to produce a web series called Cooking Up Science with Miss America. We'll provide links to her website and some notable appearances in the episode bio. Camille was diagnosed with classical Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome as a child, and she was born with dislocated hips that required procedures to correct, along with the use of a back brace. Uh, Camille, hello, and welcome back. Hello, thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited to chat uh, more about, you know, hypermobility and how it's affected all of the things uh, in my life since we last spoke. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's so great to have you back. It was such a great episode last time. I know the community has been really excited to watch your uh, really amazing and fantastic journey living with Ehlers-Danlos and, you know, being able to bring awareness from your very unique standpoint and platform that you've really been able to build for yourself. So it's incredibly impressive all you're able to do. So I guess first, do you want to start with maybe giving us a little bit of an update about what the past year has been like for you? Sure. I am back in school. And so I am now in my third year of my doctor of pharmacy program, which will take me four years. So I'm kind of over the halfway point, which is really exciting. But last year was my first year back after two years away, spending my time as Miss Virginia and Miss America. So I had to transition from what was, I mean, a difficult two years in serving those two roles, both, I mean, mentally, physically, and emotionally, and dealing with the Ehlers-Danlos was difficult during that time. But then transitioning back into student life was harder than I anticipated in terms of my EDS. Um, Academically, it was easy to kind of go back in the classroom and be successful again, which was what I was the most worried about. But coming back into, you know, sitting at a desk and the pain that I had from being seated, from having to sit in class and type on my computer and study for hours and hours and hours during the day really became difficult with my energy levels again and my pain, especially in my neck. And so my cervical spine became a huge barrier for me in my return to school. And that then, you know, consequently became many doctor's appointments trying to figure that out with school. I got an MRI, I got a CT scan trying to figure out what was going on. And ultimately, I just have craniocervical instability and not enough to really have any, you know, defined surgical treatment for, but physical therapy, all of those good things that we are all really familiar with, helped me a lot. And so now kind of moving into a new school year, I was very cognizant of how am I going to be most successful now in managing my Ehlers-Danlos as a graduate professional student, especially in healthcare where we don't always 
get to have modifications and accommodations for our physical disabilities. And I find that ironically, I think the healthcare community is one of the least accommodating for those mm-hmm. who have health problems, which mm-hmm. I think is just really ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have had a lot of success in my own program helping me to come back and be successful. And so I'm, you know, studying many, many hours a day, spending time um, with my dog. My energy levels are improved this year. I switched some medications around and uh, I'm feeling really good. And so I'm grateful for being in a good place right now because I'm sure that that will change at some point. I hope it won't. Um, But I think that as people who struggle with this chronic type of condition, when we have good weeks, we are grateful for them and realistic of the fact that that can change really quickly. So I try to take all of the preventative measures I can to keep me where I am. Absolutely. That's that's such a great perspective and such an important story. And, and thank you for, for sharing that with us. I, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like this condition has such an element of being a roller coaster to it. And I think that I mean, it's hard to pick, like, what's the most difficult part of living with Ehlers-Danlos, right? Because it's like, mm-hmm. it depends what day you asked me or what time or, you know, who I spoke to last. But in general, I definitely get the sense that it's very hard for all human beings to deal with immense uncertainty. And that's kind of the name of the game. So at, that perspective is really amazing to be able to appreciate the good times, but also, you know, kind of keep a realistic, healthy perspective, like, well, this, you know, might not be forever, you know, like there's still, there might be additional challenges, but still learning to kind of appreciate the the small or the, the rather big in your instance, um, kind of wins when they, yeah. when they come. And I've had to adopt that mindset for so long that it's become normal for me. And I think even like throughout my life in things non-Ellers-Danlos related, I'm like, okay, who knows what it's going to be like in three months or whatever. I mean, COVID's taught us that alone. Yeah. And so I think having that mindset is actually one of the benefits that having this type of condition can give you as a human being Mm -hmm. is accepting that things can change, that we cannot always plan for certain things. And I'm really type A. So I like to have everything planned out to a T. Mm -hmm. And this has made me kind of take a step back. But also, I think being the type A person that I am, trying to proactively prevent things that I can mm-hmm. from happening is a really important coping mechanism that I have and that I, many of us with EDS have. And I don't think I'm any different in that, but it's been something that I've had to incorporate into my life. When I look at like my friends that don't have these type of conditions, they don't have to worry about those types of things quite as much as I do. I have to think about how much rest I'm getting you know, am I taking care of my body physically? Am I, you know, going to the gym? That's There's plenty of times where I'm like, I don't want to do this, but it's less about like, okay, this is like, you know, going to be great because I can, you know, stay lean or X, Y, or Z. I like literally have to keep myself strong or else my body is just like, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to think about those things and fit those things into my schedule. And there's plenty of times that I don't do any of those things, which is another piece of my life where I'm like, okay, I'm not doing these things. And now I'm understanding why I'm feeling the way I do. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of opportunities in my life where I talk about Ehlers-Danlos and I, I encourage people to get an official diagnosis if they don't have one. And some people will ask, like, why does it really matter if you know that you have this type of a condition? And I feel like those moments when you are struggling so deeply 
and you say, oh, I'm struggling because I have this condition and I'm maybe not doing the things I need to to take care of myself. And what, having that clarity and maybe understanding then what you are supposed to do to be able to live your best life with a condition like EDS is such an important tool. And it, it really has very little to do with, you know, medications and so much to do with how we live our life every single day, at least for my EDS experience. Um, I find that the pharmacotherapies that I've been offered for my condition have been far less effective than lifestyle changes. And that those things are really what helped me live my, you know, to my fullest with this condition. And sometimes I wish there was a pill I could take that would make me feel better and that it wasn't, you know, me doing physical therapy or going to the gym to strengthen my muscles. But ultimately, those are the things that are the most effective. And I'm being a graduate student, it's hard to fit those things into your schedule because I'm exhausted so much of the time. Even, you know, without EDS, I would be, I'm sure, because my friends are as well. And it's difficult when you're having, when you have a really demanding schedule. I mean, for those who are listening, maybe you're not a graduate student, but maybe you work a really demanding job or have, you know, a, a lot going on at home. It's, it's not just me in my particular situation. I know that so many of us go through this. And it's, it's hard. And so I've really been encouraged um, understanding what I can do to feel better and helping other people with EDS kind of learn from what I've experienced and figure out ways that they can just, you know, make little changes in their everyday routine to make their day more successful overall. Absolutely. And that's something that I gravitate towards so much in your, your perspective of like you said, living with Ehlers-Danlos and just life in general, because I think these lessons do really translate and they end up becoming, I think that's an element we have of a sort of superpower. Like I think a lot of people, definitely myself included, relate to what you just said about being very type A. You know, I think that's kind of uh, something I've noticed in the community that a lot of us are, are like that. And, you know, there's different you know, scientific explanations as to what's going on. I've heard, um, I think there was some research suggesting that maybe we have more enlarged amygdalas and that's like, you know, fight, flight, freeze kind of um, heightened response, but it it almost doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like, you know, well, I mean, maybe in some contexts it matters, but in terms of living our lives, like, you know, a lot of us really have strong views. We want things to go a certain way. We get frustrated when our body doesn't cooperate and or or at least that's you know been going on in the past and so that's why i love your perspective of focusing on you know what what can we do like those little practical things to change the mindset from you know because it is a roller coaster and we you know i say this all the time but ultimately the issues that impact us can impact any humans you know like we're we're impacted by the same kinds of con- and things that come up and maybe more often and maybe more severely and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's it it when you're in that position of just feeling like it's one thing after another, like, you know, when am I going to get back to normal? That mm-hmm. is, a you know, and normal in quotes, um, because what what does that even mean? What is normal? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, but like that mindset, it's so difficult having like lived in that dynamic. And in yeah. trying to shift my perspective too to like, okay, you know, I, I can't, you know, lift as heavy of things as I, you know, there's so many things I can't do, but if I sit here and focus on that all day, I'll just feel like I'm drowning. But if I, like when I am in that habit of 
okay, what can I do today? What do, and what, what do I need today to feel as good as I can tonight and tomorrow, you know, and can I fit that in and how does that fit in with time? And then also being able to balance, like you said, like when you just need like to take a break from all of that and when, you know, rest and recovery and like that part of it being a big piece of it too. So I think it's fantastic. And just like you said, like the being mindful, like just realizing, okay, you know, if I don't feel good enough to get in a little bit of the exercise or PT today, um, you know, thinking like, well, but am I setting up tomorrow to be worse? Or do I need that time to recuperate so that then tomorrow I can do more? And like, we're the only ones who can really figure that out. You know, healthcare professionals are very helpful as a part of that and being able to have these conversations to kind of reorient ourselves to how we look at these issues that come up. But um, it's scary at first realizing like, oh, wow, like I have to figure this out on my own. It seems so daunting. But I think that goes back to what you said a moment earlier. And, and I hear that all the time, too, about, well, why do you want this diagnosis if it doesn't get you to a treatment? And that's so bizarre because I, I don't think I've ever heard that said about any other conditions, you know, like when other people talk about this diagnosis or that I don't remember anyone ever being like, well, why do you want that diagnosis? So it's it's a very odd like thing that seems to be, if not unique to Ehlers-Danlos, but it's certainly a part of this. And exactly what you just said, like having that explanation helps to take off some of that self-blame of like, well, why isn't my body cooperating? Why is this going on? It's like, oh, because I have Ehlers-Danlos and this is, you know, a thing that happens. And, and then once you you do have that diagnosis, you can also go to other people who have experienced mm-hmm. similar things. And like you, you said it, you know, very, very eloquently, like the pharmacological solutions, you know, there's certainly a piece of the puzzle, but I fully agree. Like nothing has helped. No pharmaceutical um, has helped me nearly as much as that sense of, you know, community and being able to go to others with this condition and, and be able to even research and, you know, start at a subset of the full data set of humanity mm-hmm. and like have a little bit of a direction what you're looking at. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that all is really important. And, and I think you do an amazing job of advocating for the community and like really explaining things like that, that are complicated in, you know, really concise language, like why are, why is diagnosis important? Yeah. Helping people to get through that process. It's so true. And it's interesting because, you know, I was diagnosed when I was very young. I was 11 when I got a diagnosis. So I have lived most of my life knowing that I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And recently, actually within the past year, I sought out genetic testing for the first time because when I was diagnosed, we didn't have access at that point. It just wasn't available to be genetically tested for, I believe, any type of EDS that was not vascular EDS. And I had always had questions about, you know, whether I had classical EDS or hypermobile EDS or, you know, a different type. And I wanted to figure that out. And some of the providers that I had asked were kind of like, well, why do you care? And for me, even understanding like what subtype of EDS that you have can just better guide your healthcare moving forward. And so to have a defined understanding of what's going on yes, at every level, I mean, there are nuances between HEDS and, and classical EDS. Are they really important, again, for the treatment considerations? Probably not. 
But for someone who, you know, will have this for the rest of my life and will have the same type for the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. having the clarity was important because I had been diagnosed with classical EDS as a child. And frankly, I was diagnosed with a very, I want to say that the typing was actually far different when I was a kid than it is now. It was reclassified at some point. And I was confused at really what type I did have. And so just better understanding my body was important. But to the point of the pharmacotherapy, I find that in medicine, a lot of diagnoses are just geared toward what pharmacotherapy is going to be prescribed mm-hmm. in so many you know levels. And I don't think that that's really, you know, has bad intentions at all. I just think that for any type of condition or diagnosis that doesn't necessarily have a defined, um, you know, treatment plan in terms of medications, the desire to want to really put a label on something can be, you know, not quite as exciting for a provider as it might be for us because we want to know and we're seeking answers. Mm -hmm. And those of us who have EDS, I mean, have a higher percentage chance of struggling with mental health disorders as well because of what we go through on a daily basis that I think from a completely mental health perspective, that diagnosis can be so valuable to a patient. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's kind of why I, I really encourage those who are, you know, thinking that maybe they have EDS. And I get many messages on social media of individuals who either see my story or have had similar experiences and are wondering if they may have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I had a friend even in class the other day that I was talking to her about. She had severe scoliosis um, and has her uh, an entire rod through her spine and has some kind of defining things about her that make me think that she could have EDS as well. And I was talking to her about it. I'm like, you should go see if maybe this is something you're struggling with because it could answer a lot of questions for you. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we know, and you and I had spoken about the Norris Lab um, prior Mm -hmm. to recording, but one of the things that the Norris Lab is finding is that especially hypermobile EDS is far more common Mm -hmm. than we ever imagined Mm -hmm. in, you know, previous literature. So knowing that, I mean, for so many of us, I'm sure that there's, you know, thousands and thousands of people across this country who have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or specifically hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome who don't know it and probably have had a lifetime of struggles that have been unexplained because I know that, you know, that was the experience for my own mom. My mom got diagnosed when I got diagnosed. So she was, I think, in her late 30s or early 40s at that point. So it, it answers so many questions. Um that, you know, just allow you to go through your day-to-day feeling like you're not crazy. Because that's one of the things that this disorder can do. And as we all know, having it, it's it's difficult to explain. And sometimes it defies a lot of the laws of medicine and is very confusing. Mm-hmm. But being able to advocate for your own care is then a, a superpower that we have. Um, and we know that we have to do that very often until our providers become more educated about it. Um but I think that the times are changing because I've had a lot of providers more recently who are much further educated about the condition. And so I will say I have to give credit to where it's due in, in seeing the people that I'm then seeing from, you know, a, a, big, a, a big range of healthcare. I mean, from dentists that I've seen to OBGYNs to primary care providers who are then more aware of hypermobility conditions uh, and understanding how to treat me as a patient with those types of conditions and keep me safe and give me the best healthcare. So I'm very encouraged by those changes. Absolutely. And I've 
begun. It you know it's very difficult in the area where I am, but I've started to see a little bit of that change. And I I really you know think a big part of that shift, which is starting to happen, which I hope is building momentum and seems to be, um, is really because of advocacy from people like you and patients telling their story, you know, then then other people hearing that and like this experience you're describing with your classmates or people on social media, because, and I'm so glad you mentioned that about the Norris Labs findings. I, th- I think they were on a podcast, uh, Dr. Norris and Courtney, uh, or uh, Dr. Gensimer, I should say. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, where I think they were saying, maybe they were speculating maybe one in 300 now, which is, and I might have that number slightly off, but I think the podcast was called Innovatively Speaking, if anyone wants to check it out. You know, that's a huge, even like the Demler et al. paper that came out from Wales, I think they were saying one in 500 mm-hmm. Wales, and that's a huge sea change from one in 5,000, which I think maybe it was Courtney, somebody looked into that and was looking like, where did this one in 5,000 number come from? And I, I thought I heard at some point that it was sort of like a guess that was made at sure. some point, because I don't think there's ever been, at least not that I'm aware of, any kind of prevalence study for any of the types of EDS. But that's such an important piece of this, because when a condition is seen as rare, I, you know, and I've, t- I've asked many doctors about this cold, like, when you hear a, a condition is rare, what do you think? And I've heard back multiple times, oh, that means we don't have to worry about it. And, <laughs> Which is so upsetting. Right? Exactly. And, and but like I completely understand, you know, not to blame them because they're in this super fast paced environment. Like it's incredibly yeah. difficult. And so that's a time calculation that they that they have to make. But well, I guess there's it's complicated. That's why I think like any condition is rare until you know someone with it. And mm-hmm. then it's not rare, it's in your life. And so you know, the more people come to realize, and if it, you know, if the one in, you know, 500, one in 300, who knows if it's the gap is closing that fast. I've even seen some speculation that it could be a few percent of the population, which would be millions and millions of people getting more of that awareness out there and realizing that, that this condition is, as Courtney said, rarely diagnosed, you know, (laughs) not truly rare you know, can hopefully shift the perception in multiple ways, you know, make providers more interested in learning about this, make more research available. What can grow from that is truly amazing. And that's why you've done a really good job of balancing those interests, taking care of yourself, doing those things that are so important, you know, putting our own oxygen masks on, like such a crazy <laughs> important thing, especially because, you know, a lot of us are really go, go, go and want to just accomplish things. And we see a lot of things that are wrong that we'd like to just wave a magic wand and, and have or, or work really hard and have them be fixed. But a lot of these are problems that you can't just throw yourself at, you know, all day long. It's mm-hmm. very draining. Yeah, I guess I'm just incredibly appreciative of all you've done to raise awareness about this condition in an accurate way, you know, that it's, and and I think your story is really important because for a long time, it's really difficult. Like my diagnosis story was much closer to your mother's. It sounds like getting diagnosed at, I think I was 29, uh, but like later in life. And then you wonder like, well, what would my life have looked like if I would have known this from a younger age? And that's why I think your story, you know, is so important that, if, if you grow up with the knowledge of this condition, I at least get the sense that it can be less daunting 
because you come away with the, it's at least possible to have a perspective like yours of like, okay, this is something I need to deal with. And it's very real. And, you know, if I don't deal with it, it's going to deal with me kind of situation. Yeah. But, but realizing that there's still a lot that you can do within that framework. Whereas it's so, it's, you know, and not to compare, because I'm sure, you know, and obviously you've had immense challenges as well. So it's not like that's just a, a panacea by any stretch. But I think it is really difficult getting diagnosed later in adulthood when your patterns are in your personality is already kind of crystallized. So having to go back and mm-hmm. like, well, I have this condition, like, what does that mean? Like this whole kind of orientation yeah. of your universe. So I'm so happy that you didn't have to go through that. And you're taking your story on the road, essentially, and putting that out there. So in the hope and in the very real reality, as you're describing, that other people won't have to suffer with that exceptional lag time to finding out what's going on. And I couldn't agree more. I think that understanding that you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome earlier in life can be such a benefit in so many different ways. And I hope that maybe one day we have, you know, a very easy and inexpensive genetic test that we can run on kids um, very early in their life to understand if they're dealing with these types of things, just like we do genetic panels for children for other genetic type diseases. For me, I think one of the distinctions between, you know, if I had been diagnosed older is instead of blaming myself for things that went wrong with my body, I was able to blame something else. (laughs) I knew that there was something there that was not, not normal. And so when I felt horrible, I was not then saying, what is wrong with me? I was like, oh, I have this thing and it's making me feel terrible today. And so it, it took the blame away from myself and I was able to place it on something else. And that was a really, I think that that's a really important thing for someone who has a chronic condition. And, you know, look, I'm trying to do these things and it's not going away. What's wrong with me? Well, you literally do have something wrong with you. And I hope that eventually we'll be able to have some type of targeted pharmacotherapy that will be able to help, you know, maybe even stop the progression of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome if we can catch it earlier. I mean, that would be a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were speaking about Dr. Gensimer and Dr. Norris talking about the prevalence. And I think it's important to consider the fact that rare diseases are not typically profitable for many companies who are thinking about developing therapies. If we don't have a lot of patients that are really affected by this, why would we be really super motivated to, you know, explore them, think about treatment options? But I think even knowing maybe that that prevalence and incidence is higher, that could also be, you know, some motivation for companies to to explore even further in research and try to figure out how we might be able to help patients either from you know, some type of, you know, treatment option, if it is pharmacotherapy or if it is something else. Because the distinction really does change from a rare disease to a more common condition when we look at that number change. And that's an important thing for us to know as a community and as really from a healthcare, you know, perspective and as someone who's really um, passionate about medicine as a pharmacy student and someone who loves science, that understanding that is really important. And so I'm so grateful for what the Norris Lab is doing because they are dedicating so much time and resources to go toward this disorder that has been long forgotten about. I couldn't be more grateful for them. And I'm I'm glad that I was able to become friends with them as well and visit the lab. Uh, I get a lot of inquiries as well through my page and my social media 
about the Norris Lab because we did some collaborations together. And so people think that somehow I'm on that research group and I always send them to, to Courtney and to Dr. Norris as well. Um, but it's exciting to me when I see those messages come in because it lets me know that the message that we were putting out is getting to the right people. And that's always really encouraging. And I cannot wait until their their paper comes out because I know that they have some really exciting findings about uh, hypermobile EDS that they're looking to publish very soon. And so I'm eagerly waiting to see when that all comes out. Yes, me too. Um, it's so it's so exciting. And really, like you said, it's it's just it feels good that someone is looking into this and that someone cares. <laughs> yes, and and particularly. I mean, you know, like Dr. Courtney Gensimer, like the way this research came about with her being open and telling her own story to Dr. Norris, which then sparked his curiosity and led to this, you know, amazing project that's being worked on. That's really inspiring to me, too, that it it wasn't, you know, so it's almost like the cherry on top of the situation. Like, I'm so just glad that anyone is looking into this. I, I'm even more glad that people telling their own story, you know, moved, you know, and got some scientific research off the ground and hopeful that that will happen, you know, in more places throughout the country and throughout the world. And like you said, when something is thought of as rare, that removes a lot of the financial incentive, you know, for it to be explored. And so it goes back to that question of like, well, why do people want the diagnosis? And I think Mm -hmm. it's almost like a two pronged reason, like, like you said, like for an individual, it's incredibly valuable and validating, like you were saying. And I think that's a very insightful insight of like the comparison of your experience versus someone who's diagnosed later in life, like having quote unquote something to blame or like a reason, like an explanation for what's going on. That's incredibly um, validating and reassuring because like you were saying there, you know, there are a lot of mental health struggles in this community, you know, a lot of anxiety um, in particular and especially the phenomenon like you described where something's going wrong and it's like, oh no, something's wrong with me. Why am I having this problem again? And going to this very isolated place. Whereas when you can say, oh, like, you know, I'm having a symptom flare of Ehlers-Danlos, like I'm going to go back to my resources, figure out how to deal with this. And if I can't come up with a plan, I'll go to other people I know with this condition. And at the very least, they can listen to me vent and that's reassuring. But a lot of times they have really practical, amazing suggestions, like if not a remedy to try, like what kind of practitioner to go see, what, you know, what kind of lens to be searching in. And so, you know, for an individual that the diagnosis matters a lot. And then also for the community, because the more people that have the diagnosis and are attributing what's going on with them to their physical state instead of just, oh, no, I'm a failure. What's wrong with me? Like those kind of intrusive thoughts, the more we have that kind of awareness and people looking for answers. That's how, you know, the Norris Lab research gets started. And that's how awareness gets raised for the community, like through your efforts. And that's kind of what I see as the only way forward for the community is for people to see us realize that we're worthy of time and research and healthcare resources and, you know, to, to hopefully eventually be on the path to better actual treatments and, yeah. you know, and, and just us being able to live within our constraints and obstacles and limitations, but also be able to 
you know, do fulfilling things that are in accordance with our great gifts and talents, which I think we also have a lot of as a community. Absolutely. And I think even with that diagnosis part, in my experience as someone who is a very functional person with EDS, I have been kind of questioned for so many years of like, do you really have this condition? Because so many providers have a perception of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome that is far more disabled than what a person like me looks like. Mm -hmm. And that has been another shift that I'm glad to be able to kind of be a part of in a way, because I think that I'm able to kind of put a face somehow in, you know, having the platform that I do Mm -hmm. to the reality of what functional Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome really can look like. And that although there are many individuals who do end up with disabilities for more disabilities than what I do have, um, that I'm, and I'm very lucky to be in the position that I'm in, but so many of us don't necessarily look like that on the on the outside, but it does not mean that we do not consistently struggle with chronic pain and fatigue and dislocations and injuries and all of the things that come with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And that has been one of my challenges as a person that doesn't look like I have this, is that I'm kind of questioned. And so to be able to be that advocate for so many of us who look normal and healthy, that's going to help individuals that like me look normal and healthy, but have these issues that have been ignored for so many years to finally get a diagnosis. And I think for those who are either listening or are able to, you know, see what I do on social media, um, that people can then relate to that and maybe see if they are struggling with similar things that I do. And that's just been something that I'm kind of excited to be able to be a part of in a weird way, because I'm fine to, to be the face of functional EDS. Um, but I'm also extremely aware of the fact that my functionality can change and that as I get older, that I might not have the same abilities. Well, I won't have the same abilities that I have right now, but to what extent I don't have those abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? But I'm grateful to have what I do now. Um, but it is one of those things where I've had so many providers really say like, oh, no, you absolutely don't have that because if you did, you would look like X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And that's just not accurate. And we know that now. And so making those changes within our healthcare system, I'm glad that I can kind of be that person. And I, I don't have to do that quite as much anymore, which I think, again, goes back to what I was saying in terms of the the landscape of you know hypermobility awareness changing. Absolutely. And thank you so much for making that point. That's such an important point. And it's something I've noticed having done this podcast for a while now. I was one of the sort of trends that I've observed in kind of taking a step back and thinking about the big lessons that I've learned from speaking to so many people in the community and providers of all types, doctors, physical therapists. Um, There's been so many professionals who I've spoken to both in interviews and like kind of off the record chats about how they went through professional schools like PT school or medical school even and learned about Ehlers-Danlos and thought, (laughs) oh, that's definitely not me. And I think Ah. like, how bizarre is that, right? Like that literally even professionals who are, were learning about this condition in school, you know, which is way more than the average population hears about Ehlers-Danlos because of the way it's depicted, they end up thinking, oh no, that's okay. I definitely don't have that when they did. I think that speaks to like what you were saying to the extent people have an understanding of what Ehlers-Danlos is, 
it's often either like, oh, you're, it, it's so great. You're so flexible. You can do party tricks or you're great at yoga, right? That must mm-hmm. be fun. And the sort of flip side of that, which is like, oh my gosh, this is the most horrible, most debilitating condition of all time, not to discount from it. I think it has a reputation as the most painful condition out there or one of the top most painful for a reason, you know, I think it it is really difficult. And there are a lot of complications that happen. And there's certainly a huge spectrum that we're talking about again, you know, and, I, and, and that, that's been striking too to see the true spectrum nature of this condition from people who are kind of at the top of their fields in various different capacities to people that are, you know, essentially debilitated or, you know, in very, very difficult positions. Um, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier, like if people are aware from an earlier age, is can they prevent some of the complications or prevent the severity? But at the very least, like having that awareness, at least shortcuts that or hopefully shortcuts most of those intrusive thoughts of like, oh, no, what is it? It's me. It's my fault. You know, that kind of yeah. thinking. Yeah, the perception, it, it's really striking, you know, having kind of observed other professionals talking about this, how the depiction of Ehlers-Danlos is so one-dimensional and just not robust. You know, I've heard that many times, oh, there, there's no way you can have that because, you know, you wouldn't look this good or you wouldn't sound this good. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is a huge spectrum. And we learn to deal with a lot from an early age. So we are acclimated to a high, higher level of pain. You know, our seven or eight, like, you know grimacing or you know you might be able to tell you know if you don't know us very well you might not be able to tell but someone else who has never dealt with chronic pain they're seven or eight they might be screaming and crying on the floor and that's not to say either of those reactions are more or less valid it's just based on that person's lived experience and what they've come to accept as normal so yeah I I think changing that perception of what Ehlers-Danlos is is so important and I'm so encouraged to see that you are so willing and able to be a face um, or or the face of, like you said, functional Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And and like I said, it just it's so impressive how it, you know it's so hard to on social media to put out an accurate depiction of oneself. But I'm I really admire people like you, people like Dr. Gensimer. Um, yeah, I'm blanking. There's tons more people, but there's you know some people doing incredible advocacy of showcasing the challenges of this condition, but also how much you can do within those limitations, especially once you come to terms with those challenges and respect them and work with them instead of, you know, a lot of us are, you know, stuck in that phase of feeling like we're kind of fighting against ourselves on some level and that's not productive. And so it's really inspiring that you're able and and willing to, to, to do this advocacy work and and so great that you're already experiencing the benefits of that with less of that kind of eyebrow raise when you mm-hmm. talk about Ehlers-Danlos and people are like, really, do you have that? Because that I heard that was a thing where people are, you know, completely debilitated. And so, yeah, it's that's really amazing. I think it's so important. And it's funny because I've met people with the exact same diagnosis that I have um, who are in wheelchairs. Um, who are reliant upon that for most of their day. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of sobering and humbling to me to to be with individuals that have that same condition and to see the spectrum, but also be grateful for the fact, you know, that I am so functional. And it, it's a it's a it's an awareness 
for me to then realize um, how lucky I am. And that's important for me as well. But I think even when you're speaking about kind of the medical education, I don't even really learn about elder stainless at all. Now, I'm in a pharmacy program. And it is interesting because you're you, some people would you know question why you would really need to know about like a hypermobility condition in a pharmacy program. But it's interesting because I learned through a lot of discussions with other individuals with EDS, there are particular classes of drugs that you may not want to take if you have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, like things like fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of considerations that I think that we forget about um, in a lot of different aspects of healthcare. But it's, you know, I think we have a, a long way to go is my point, because in some of that formal medical and healthcare education, we do kind of forget about that spectrum and what those individuals might look like. So then we can think of how do we adapt, you know, these considerations to this patient that comes in and is under my care and being able to quickly identify if they might have a hypermobility spectrum disorder. Because now we know that so many more people do. Mm -hmm. And so for me, kind of in so many, I have, I have a lot of different kind of um, spaces that I work in because of who I am being a pharmacy student, being someone that has a a platform as a former Miss America. uh, And then just as someone with EDS who has conversations with others who have the same type of experiences, you know, I want to be a better pharmacist who can advocate for that piece for those of us with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And then on the other side, as a patient, be able to have better interactions with the healthcare system. But it's just really interesting to see how it has been forgotten about. But again, I'm encouraged to see the differences with it. But it's just so important that we continue to raise awareness about this. I think that it's something that we're able to directly see the impact of when I then go into my doctor's office and there's a, a higher level of awareness. And, you know, it's a collective effort and grateful to see places like the Norris Lab and other groups that have done a really great job in in making the general public aware of what this condition is and why they should care about it. So I just feel really lucky to be someone with EDS in this time. Um, And even comparatively to my mom, you're talking about like if there's things that we could have potentially done to prevent a certain level of issues. Mm -hmm. My mom had injuries that potentially she could have prevented if she had known that she had issues with hypermobility and dislocations. And she knows that because she played sports her whole life. So there were things that I didn't do growing up because I knew that they were going to put me at higher risk for injuries that potentially could be long-term. I still played certain sports and have injuries that are (laughs) chronic ones, but Mm -hmm. I made that decision very consciously and Mm -hmm. I knew that. Just having... Having the knowledge, I like to say that, you know, if we empower patients with the knowledge and allow them to make their own decisions, Mm -hmm. that's such a positive move because you're not going to, as a provider, just telling your patients what to do is not always the best answer, Mm -hmm. right? You're not going to really get anywhere if that person doesn't agree with what you're saying or doesn't understand why they should do a certain thing. So providing that really broad education about what can happen, what the risks are, and then allowing them to make that final choice is just a really important piece in understanding how to deal with having a hypermobility spectrum disorder. Absolutely. And that hits on two really important points. First, the importance of informed consent. That's a really big topic for me, something I'm a 
big proponent of. And you can't have informed consent if you don't know what's going on. Right? So <laughs> yes. I wanted to fold this back into our uh, kind of ongoing discussion about the importance of accurate diagnoses. That's such an important piece of it. And you're absolutely right. And I think that model is that is starting to shift to where it used to be, you know, in, in recent history, not all of human history for sure. But it used to be a model in the modern era where you go to the doctor, they give you the, they they tell you what's wrong and they give you the instructions for what you need to do. And that, like you said, it just, it just doesn't work for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And so understanding what that person's lifestyle is like, what their priorities are, what their goals are, and allowing them to make decisions. Like I think the sports example in school is such a great one because you know, looking back, there's certainly things like I wish I hadn't skied as much as a kid, things that put like undue stress on my hips and joints, but I also really enjoyed it. And so it's important for people to be able to put those things into context and make decisions. And that should be everyone's choice to make not that it fits for everyone with this condition, again, huge spectrum that we're talking about for sure. But being able to make those informed decisions for things that fit in the context of our overall life is so important. And you just highlighted that really well by talking about the different hats that you wear, even in this context, (laughs) like how you're a pharmacy student, you're an advocate with your platform and having been Miss America, and you're a person living with EDS, and you're just a person, you know, we're all people at the end of the day, too. And so being able to kind of think about those different roles we play, those different hats we put on in life, and figure out what, what are our values, what do we want to do, and what can we do with our physical limitations, and then working from that place instead of from working from a place of, well, what would I do if the options were unlimited, which is not really anyone's, it feels like that's the the sort of playing field that we operate in, but it's not. Every person has their limitations and their great abilities, and so it's but it, it's hard to put all of that in context if you don't even have the basics of like what you have. And so yeah, that's it's such an important point to make. And uh, and just to go back for a second, you talked a little bit earlier about the transition, you know, back to school being difficult, and you know that really resonated too. Because like you were saying, the challenges of just sitting in a chair, you know, like. I think most people would think it's probably more demanding to be Miss America and be on the road all the time. But I think in general, what I hear from a lot of hypermobile people and and that has resonated with me is like, we, we kind of need a lot of variety in challenge. And a lot of people in the community need a kind of variation in what they're doing. But like sitting at a desk all day, every day is really, really difficult for a lot of people in this community, you know, and so that's such an interesting experience. But I think it also speaks to the larger experience that we're all having, like everyone experienced this pandemic and this huge disruption to their life and now kind of transitioning back into um, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, a more, you know, stable time, hopefully, that some of those things like sitting in a chair that seem superficially quote unquote easy, like are actually really big challenges for us. And so I really, yeah, being so open about those kind of challenges. Absolutely. And it is really one of those funny things where you'd be like, Oh gosh, like, Oh, you have such a hard life sitting in a chair all day long. And it really can be so hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, being Miss America was extremely difficult on me physically, but is just physically difficult difficult in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I wouldn't say one is harder than the other, Mm -hmm. but it was more unexpected for me to have the physical difficulties in student life and, and in, you know, sitting at a desk life. And one of the really important things that I changed in my life when I did come back to school, and it's interesting because, again, I've known I've had EDS for so long, but it was not until I came back and started to struggle with my cervical spine that I considered even at all making my workspace ergonomically, you know, proper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably not the right way to say it, but you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. is considering the ergonomics of the way that I was working on a da- daily basis. Mm-hmm. and. It's one of those things that I look back now and I'm like, I can't believe I waited this long to do this and has been one of the ways that I've adapted, you know, to the cards that I have been dealt. And I think this is a theme that we've talked about, but it's not necessarily thinking about the limitations of things that I can't do, but just trying to work with what I have. How can I do the thing that I want to do with the situation that I'm in? So, okay, I need to work at my desk all day long because I'm a student and I have to get work done and I have to do certain things. So how can I work with this and get through it in a way that feels comfortable to me? And so making changes to allow me to just do the job that I want to do. I think there's very few things in my life that I've ever been like, I just can't do that. Um, One of them would be skydiving. Not that I really want to, but Mm -hmm. I have, I got denied from doing an indoor skydiving exercise because of my shoulders and my risk of dislocation. But I was like, you know, there's no way I can really adapt this situation to work for me, but I don't Mm -hmm. really care. I'm like, whatever, I can skip that. But in my day-to-day life and most of the things that potentially cause me struggles in my everyday life, there's some way that I can adapt them to be more comfortable for me. And I think just understanding that and knowing that maybe I need some changes, I, I might need some accommodations either in school or in life or for my own self that I have to make accommodations, you know, in the way that I do certain things are just normal to me now. And I I seek those out instead of try to ignore them. If something becomes an issue, I'm like, ooh, how can I make this better for myself? Having that mindset, I think for me, I'm very innovative. And I think that's why I like science. And so I like solving Mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. But it took me a while to understand that if something wasn't working for me, that I could try to change it. And I know that sounds silly, but that's been, I'm kind of stubborn. And I'm like, oh, I just need to make this work. And that's really a detrimental mindset for all of us, no matter if we have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or not, thinking about what we can do to allow us to be the most successful person that we can be in whatever you know sense that is is a mindset that I'm grateful to now have. And that's, of course, having Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome for my 27 years of life Mm -hmm. and knowing about it for for so much of it. It's allowed me to kind of change that mindset. And so, yeah, if you don't have an ergonomic workspace and you're listening to this, you should definitely think about that right now because it's a change that you will not regret. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point. And there's so much to kind of unpack in what you just said. And it, it totally makes sense. And it's a, it's almost a, it's a great like example to look at, like the challenges of being Miss America, which I can only imagine. I just couldn't do it, but uh, <laughs> a lot of reasons. But um, that's a very, you know, a fast pace and kind of, you know, a hectic schedule. And like, I'm sure was very demanding. But what you said then was, you know, transitioning to school life, you didn't expect it to be so difficult, but you'd kind of expected the Miss America time to be difficult. And I mm-hmm. think that that's a, such a great comment on the role of the importance between our expectations and our reality. And when we're expecting things to be tough, 
we can, we're in a different mindset as opposed to when we expect that things should just go easily. And I think that's a big challenge with people with EDS, the things that are superficially quote unquote easy. Although the rest of the working world is starting to pick up on this whole, like, Oh, sitting all day, you know, might be actually really detrimental for most people of most body types. So it's starting to kind of percolate, but you know, it goes back to that mindset thing. And, you know, you've said that you, you see yourself as lucky. And I guess from what I've seen as an outside observer, it, you know, I guess there, there's an element of luck to everything in life. Um, there's a great book, Thinking in Bets, that talks about looking at life like a poker game instead of like a chess game. <laughs> and that really helped to change my thinking on life because I definitely realized I was trying to play chess and life is more like poker because there's an element of that how you have ad- adapted and built this mindset and worked to overcome these things. Like that's the result of your, your perseverance and your, your mentality. So I think that's really a great accomplishment outside of just luck, I guess, in my, my view of it. But mm-hmm. um, it's such a great point about the ergonomic desk. And that is something that is so important. And so many people in the community have cervical spine instability issues and other things like that. And so that's that's a great tip, but yet many of us like I had a very similar experience to you. It wasn't until my CCI started getting really bad that I finally went to practitioners and figured out <laughs> how to set up an ergonomic desk and had it explained to me that every ten degrees your head is forward, I think it's an additional ten pounds of pressure on your spine. And thinking about that going to the trapezius muscles and down the back, it helped to put those pieces together for me. Again, it it's like as hopefully awareness grows and people are telling their story, you know, like you, hopefully it will become more of a standard thing for ergonomics to be something that's like upfront when you're starting a new job that someone can guide you in or that you you know to, to be in on that. And so it doesn't have to happen after the pain and dysfunction start happening and can happen more proactively. I totally agree. I feel like we should have a a manual for you just got diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. What should you do to manage it? And those are the things that I think about. And I suggest to people that have new diagnoses, because again, it's all about the preventative changes that we can make so that you don't end up with the, you know, the cervical issues that I ended up with. Certain things that are just easy changes that we can make. And that's something that I've really just become passionate about knowing myself to make my own life easier. I think also just knowing, you know, as people that are going to have this forever, how can we live our lives in a way that's comfortable and with the least amount of pain? And for me, I'd like to take the least amount of medications possible, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, So just trying to do things to minimize my pain has just been really important to me. And I feel like I've been pretty successful with it thus far. But I think you're right. You know, calling myself lucky. I think that it it all comes down to perspective as well of like living with this for so long, you start to somewhat minimize, you know, the Mm -hmm. impact that does have on your life because you're so used to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably really good at that and often will seem more functional than I am. (laughs) Um, But I think I still know that it could be so much worse for me. And I know that it could get worse for me. Um, and that's another thing that I do often think about. But overall, I do know that I, I, I feel like I've gotten dealt a certain hand of cards that I can work with. But it is just, it, it is interesting how we do sometimes do that to ourselves where we say, okay, like, you know, 
I'm fine, but we're not always fine. <laughs> yeah, it's something that I definitely hear a lot from the community just and how, how difficult and isolating that can be to have to kind of put on this this mask of I'm fine for a lot of complex reasons. I mean, part of it is just trying to get through the day as much as you can. And so, so to some extent, it can be healthy to put things in perspective and not dwell on every little thing, but some things kind of just hijack your mind, so to speak, and are really immediate and, and can't be ignored. And I think for a lot of people having been dismissed by people in their lives, coworkers, friends, family, doctors, it's not comfortable to say, yeah, I'm not really okay today. I'm not doing well because you know, for a lot of us, there's, there's a high likelihood that the person's going to look at us and be like, what do you mean? You look great. And that is like, you know, one of the most painful things, a very conflicted thing that we can hear that's, it's not uncomplicated because it's, it's tough when, and again, that expectations versus reality factor of people look at us and because they don't have many depictions of Ehlers-Danlos in media or in their, their reference in their life they're trying to make sense of, well, everything I know about health, that seems to be consistent with what I'm seeing in this person, but what they're telling me is at odds with that. And so I realize it's difficult, but, you know, for people to understand, but that's where I think like, you know, that raising awareness and the efforts that you and, um, you know, so many other amazing advocates are doing are really starting to, you know, change that perception and just, and, and bring it more in line with accurate reality. So that's wonderful. I I completely agree that the awareness piece is so important to this. And so thank you for what you're doing as well, for giving us an opportunity to share our stories. And as someone also with EDS, just creating this platform for so many people to be able to learn about the condition so deeply. Um, I appreciate what you're doing as well, because together, I think that we can all really make this issue less of one for those of us with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility. And hopefully many years down the road, people with these conditions will have a lot less struggles than all of us have gone through for many, many years. Absolutely. I fully share in that dream. And yeah, it's, that's, you know, this podcast kind of grew out of this sort of similar things of what we were talking about, me taking stock of my life and realizing that I definitely could not physically continue to be a commercial litigation attorney. Um, that's It's a really demanding, hectic lifestyle for anyone, but certainly didn't fit with my capabilities. But when I could kind of grieve the loss of, of what that meant, then I could take stock of what was still left. And, you know, I realized, oh, I was trained in how to ask people questions. And so I'm like, okay, well, I can apply that because I, you know, I, I definitely, I don't feel like I have many answers or, or that there are many, you know, set in stone answers when it comes to hypermobility, because there's been so little awareness and research. I, I really see the value in, in just in asking questions and then hearing other people's tell their story. I think that's been one of the most, like you said, like comparing pharmacology versus the everything else, the mindset piece, the, um, you know, how this all feels, hearing other people tell their stories really has made me profoundly realize I'm not alone. I'm not dreaming this stuff that's happening to me. You know, it, it's real and it's being experienced by a lot of people. And then that's really motivating to try to say, hey, what can we do to hopefully make the future, you know, a little bit a little bit brighter for people with this condition and just having that awareness and being able to make those informed consent decisions, I think is critically important in that. 
I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad that we're heading toward that. Um, and I think, again, your point of informed consent is a great one because often, you know, we might have a list of things that we shouldn't do, but it's up to us as individuals to make that decision for ourselves. And I think that's been an important thing for me to understand as an individual who has a condition like this, because, you know, we know that we shouldn't eat McDonald's every day, or there's certain things that like, if you eat ice cream every day, it's not going to be good for you. But there's plenty of us who make that decision and say, no, I want to do this. And not like it's always the best decision. Mm -hmm. But for us to know, to understand what's going to be good for us and bad for us and make that decision for ourselves, so that we feel like we have control mm -hmm. over our life and that it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm never allowed to do this again. It, that can be really difficult. I mean, when you think of like, especially if it's something that you love. For me, like I loved sports growing up. And so if there were certain things physically that someone told me I was never allowed to do again, mm -hmm. that would be so hard for me to, to deal with. And I think that's part of what makes these diagnoses really difficult. But having conversations with patients, but also within the community about creating balance in your life and being able to have a sustainable, healthy experience, but also do the things that you want to do mm -hmm. uh, and make those choices strategically. Because ultimately we, we have to seek our own happiness and do the things that we want to do at the end of the day, but you know, prevent long-term damage. So there's plenty of things I'm like, eh, I'll do that today because I might, I might be hurting a little bit tomorrow, but it's not really going to do anything too bad for me. Yeah. Uh, and then there's other choices where I say, I'm like, ah, I'm going to sit this one out because uh, it's not, it might hurt me and really physically hurt me in the long term. And just understanding where your boundaries are as a human being, I think is such a big piece of living with this kind of condition. Absolutely. And I, I loved your skydiving example. That's such a, it's such a great discrete example of this kind of <laughs> a balancing act that we all have. To yeah. Do. And it is a different mindset of like, I think it's tough for any human to be told they can't do anything, <laughs> even if it's totally yes. practical. I think there's a part of our minds who are like, I'll show you, you know, I'll find it. What are you, who are you to tell me, you know, just that, mm -hmm. that little voice. And so it's a different decision to say, oh, well, I'd like to go skydiving, but I'm realizing that this presents a big risk to me. And so I'm, I'm not going to do it because I'm making an investment in my future self, not getting yes. more shoulder problems or whatever it might be. And so it's not like I'm giving something up. I'm choosing to, to do something that's in my long-term self's interest. And that's the kind yes. of elaborate balancing act that can only be done with a basic level of awareness. Um, it just reminds me of the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And there's a, mm -hmm. a line in there about how life, life's a great balancing act. And it's like, that's so true. And I, I feel like it's particularly true for us. Like we're, we're on maybe like a smaller tightrope than most <laughs> with a bigger um, or, or whatever uh, balancing stick is more difficult to balance with. I don't know enough <laughs> about this metaphor, but um, yeah. So it's like, we have these basic challenges, but ultimately it's kind of a heightened version of what everyone has to go through in, in a way we're sort of fortunate for being for having to confront these big issues because they give us the opportunity to to say hey what actually what do i want my life to look like and not everybody has those kind of existential crises moments that lead them to that kind of clarity of figuring out what they want to do and then how to accomplish that absolutely and i definitely can forego skydiving happily but there were certain things that I want to do. And it's it's just a perfect example of, again, the decisions that we make every day. Mm. Um, and that's 
just knowing that I'm going to have to make those decisions for the rest of my life. I'm just aware of those things, again, more than most. But mm-hmm. I still think that those are decisions that more people should consider. Yes. Even those who don't have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And so we can really teach others about thinking about our limits in a realistic way, but also not letting them limit us. Absolutely. That was so well said. And I completely agree. And I think we have a lot you know, we, we often hear about the obstacles and the limitations of Ehlers-Danlos, and I'm not discounting any of that. It certainly is, there's a lot to deal with in a big spectrum. Yeah, I think we, the, the community has a lot to offer the world if the world would be a little bit more accommodating. And so, yeah, hopefully it's it's great to see this positive momentum. Just thank you so much for your time and, and joining us today. And it was, it was lovely speaking with you as always. And you just have such a great uplifting and kind of inspiring presence and, and advocacy. And yet you're, you're very accurate and open about your own experiences. And I just, I think that's wonderful and has really, really translated into more people being aware of this condition. It's so exciting to hear that, you know, you're observing that in everyday life. Yeah, it's incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for your time today and for all that you've done for the community. It's it's incredible. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to continue to share my own experiences with EDS. I'm always excited to be able to use the struggles that I've had in my own life to help somebody else. Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. See you next time. Bye.